Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good morning. None of us has escaped the pandemic's impact. It has hit lives and economies like a tidal wave. And like any tidal wave, as and when it recedes, it will leave a very different landscape. The question is, how different would it be? France is one of the world's major powers and under President Macron's leadership, uh, is once again in the EU's driving seat. So its perspective on the world and the EU matters for all of us. Joining me today to talk about the pandemic and its impact on France and the EU's future uh, are Jean Pisane Ferry, one of France's and the EU's leading thinkers and an advisor to successive French governments, and Bronwyn Maddox, director of the Institute for Government here in London and one of our leading authorities on public policy. Let's start with a brief stock take because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, a stock take on the pandemic's impact and where we're going next. The vaccine cavalry has arrived in the developed world at least, uh, and we're looking forward to enjoying the company of other people at work, in bars and pubs and on holiday, uh, or are we? Uh, are we heading back to business as usual or should we expect further bumps uh, in the road? Bronwyn, let me turn to you first. Uh, what is your current perspective? How, how overjoyed should we be that really now the worst is behind us? Well, if you walk around London as I was last night, people seem pretty overjoyed. Um, packing the restaurants and the bars and just generally out having fun meeting. Um, you can see people meeting in each other's houses and things. A sense of, um, of energy and activity is there. So actually though, is, is, is the traffic. Uh, people have piled into their cars but not yet onto public transport. And that's a symptom, it seems to me, of the fact that in answer to your question, we don't really know. We've got enormous grounds for optimism about the vaccine, vaccination program, but we don't yet know exactly how successful that is going to be. And if people who haven't been vaccinated, and that's a lot of people, um, including children and teenagers, if, if many of those people caught the virus, that's an awful lot of people. So I think in a way, this is um, the most the government's most difficult decision point, harder than the ones last year, because um, normality feels so much within reach. People are really tired um, and strained and, and financially precarious after the past year. And yet so many things remain uncertain that it is very, very difficult, it seems to me, for the government to say, you know what, we're just going to press ahead and open it all up. We're back to normal. But shouldn't we really be getting used to nervousness and instead just rely on the science? I mean, if there's no evidence that any known variant uh, of the virus shows increased resilience to, to, to the vaccine, then what is the policy argument for prolonging lockdowns? I mean, at what point do we rely on vaccine uh, science, rely on herd immunity, and put the economy first? Because 
you know, it's all very well, but we have our livelihoods to think about. Mm. I, you know, I, th I think that's a very fair argument, which has been running all the way through this. I don't, it seems to me, I, I don't think we're quite at that point yet. The uncertainties, the unknowns that I described are scientific ones. Um, we don't know um, how much the vaccine is going to be successful at keeping hold of, um, of the spread of the virus, any variant uh, in, in the population. And um, the fact is if a lot of more people get the virus that still could lead to a number of deaths that is like, politically uh, intolerable. It's just, it's, it's the, the public doesn't want that. Um, you're absolutely right. I, th I think it is also the, the duty of governments to push back on fear um, and say, look, um, we really are on top of this. But I, I, I think it's, it's hard. Um, the new variants um, could be a, a real problem. And the fact is, while the virus is raging in parts of the world, there are going to be new variants and there will be ones that will evade these vaccines because that's the whole point of the virus evolution. Uh, so it's a question of whether the virus can, whether the vaccines can keep up. Um, I, I just, um, putting both the politics and the economics together, I think it is still quite hard for the government to lift everything at this point and say, let's go for it. Jean, how does it look in France? I mean, uh, are, is the French government, are the French people uh, ready to embrace uh, the vaccine and to embrace herd immunity, or is there still very great caution? Um, vaccination started slowly because the government was afraid of uh, the anti-vax uh, movement. I mean, French people are were at least uh, exceptionally reluctant to vaccination. And so the government was initially very afraid. Uh, in fact, vaccination campaign is a success. Um, so uh, it found itself, you know, being criticized for being too slow. Um, and, uh, and, and then it's being ramped up uh, and, uh, at, at, at a pace that's, you know, very comparable to other European countries, uh, to other EU, EU countries. And, and really the constraints is the availability uh, of vaccine. So we have now 20 million people who got uh, a first or a second jab, uh, which, uh, which starts being, being meaningful and which starts impacting uh, clearly uh, the contagion. Uh, we're very far from herd immunity, uh, but today is the day where uh, shops uh, reopen, uh, Restaurants reopen on terrace. Uh, it's raining heavily, actually. So <laughs> it's not the best day to <laughs> make use of this new new freedom. Um, but hopefully, it, it will improve. Uh, the uh, the government uh, tried uh, a strategy of gradual reopening against the advice of the of the medical professional. The, the scientists uh, were much more cautious. They were. Uh, warning against the risk of, um, of, a, of a surge in the, in, in, in the epidemic because of the higher uh, contagion uh, of the, of the uh, British variant. Or, um, but in the end, the, the, the sort of horse race between vaccination and, uh, and contagion seems to be won by vaccination so far. Um, the, you know, we, the number of cases went down from uh, 
about 40,000 to about 15,000 within the course of a few weeks. So, so far it works. Uh, obviously it's a very delicate balance and I would uh, completely agree with Panun uh, that we, we don't know and you know, that's really moving by, by feeding the stones and, and, and seeing how to adjust the strategy. Okay. And clearly, uh, it's difficult because they, there is a strong appetite for returning to, to normal life. Um, let's, let's look ahead. I mean, keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best and look ahead at what sort of economy uh, we're going to return to. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has had a different impact on different uh, sectors. I mean, if you take hospitality and travel, for example, they're pretty binary open or closed. But, you know, one has to hope and assume that they will return uh, to how they were. In the services sector, like our own, many businesses have discovered improvements in productivity. Now, will this accelerate um, uh, remote working, continue remote working? Uh, and prove economically advantageous for us? Will it, will it be transformative or, or is it a blip? Jean, with your economist's hat on, how would you evaluate the effects of what we have experienced and the remote working that we have developed and invested in over the last year? Um, what would the effects of that be on, on productivity and the economy going forward? I mean, can you give any sort of numbers on the effects uh, that, uh, that, that have uh, arisen uh, from the changing pattern and practices of working that we've experienced? I'm afraid no numbers because uh, it would be highly speculative. But I think that's a fundamental debate. And it's a fundamental debate for economic policy. Uh, there is a tendency of uh, you know, thinking that this crisis will be like the financial crisis, so that there will be a permanent scar uh, with a potential uh, output of the economy going down as a consequence of this crisis, of you know, foregone investment, of people uh, having lost their jobs and moved out of the labor force, of uh, um, sectors uh, that are affected. And if you believe that, um, then you have to adjust uh, your whole strategy, including your fiscal and budgetary uh, strategy, to uh, this lower level of output. And that's very much what sort of conventional uh, policymaking would tell you. Let's be, be cautious with the risk of validating this pessimistic view. I completely share your view that there are scars, undoubtedly. I mean, there are sectors that are down. Uh, I mean, business travel is going to remain down, possibly permanently, uh, as compared to previous trends. But there is also the fact that in this crisis, companies have discovered new ways of organizing uh, work. Uh, they have, uh, you know used, obviously, uh, remote working uh, much more intensively. They have simplified procedures. They have invested in digitalization. They have developed e-commerce, um, all sorts of improvements. Um, and 
after the crisis, after the health crisis, when the, the, the situation normalizes, they will be able to choose from a wider portfolio of technologies, organizations, which by definition will result in an increase in productivity. Because if, 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 if things were better uh, you know, before in the pre-crisis mode of organization, it's simply companies will return to the way they were doing things before. But if some of these improvements of, the, of these changes introduced by the crisis uh, result in, in, in productivity gain, they will you know, keep on working the way they worked during the crisis. So it's by definition, it's productivity gain. So which means uh, it may certainly, I, I would suggest it may offset the, the, uh, the scars. So the scars uh, in the case of France, people say it's about 2% of GDP. Um, that could be perhaps the order of magnitude of the productivity gain that would, would offset these scars. Okay. Yeah. And it's a really interesting question of whether these are going to be scars. I mean, it's a metaphor. Um, they could simply be changes. I, I think it's a fascinating experiment, which could come out quite well, um, of, of, of um, you said people changing ways of work with a bit of investment in broadband and so on. Uh, much of that done at the personal level. Um, and so you get a gain in product productivity. And then this, this astonishing experiment um, in, in um, you know, the UK and on the big scale in America of running the, the economy very hot, but putting a lot more demand through that, that system. It could um, uh, unlock the magical um, leap in productivity that has been so elusive um, in, the, in the UK, particularly in, in the last 10 years. But just to be clear from both of you, you think that this sort of decline in face-to-face -face meetings and working and coming together in offices, that, that that is actually producing a potential productivity gain that we're not losing anything by not being together? Is that what you're saying in, say, the services sector? Well, you get more done. Um, I think uh, you've, you've put your finger on what, what everyone who was working together face-to-face -to -face and is now working remotely is trying to grapple with, which is what do you lose by not um, being face-to-face? -face? What are the conversations, uh, the contacts and so on? Um, and I don't know, I mean, simply being with colleagues in the, in the office in the past few days, there are an enormous number of, of conversations that one does have face-to-face uh, -face that one just doesn't book a Zoom meeting to go, to, get, to go and have. But there is also the question that you get, you can get an awful lot more done without the traveling, without the lunch breaks. You agree with Jean then, Bronwyn, that we could uh -huh. actually be looking at quite significant productivity gains from these new ways of working. Yes, yes, I am. Wow. With, with, a, with, with an enormous question then about who pays for the railways and, and, and other bits of infrastructure that have had so much investment um, uh, and thought to be the key to productivity and actually maybe much less so in the future. I think we're going to go hybrid. Uh, you know, I personally, I won't be crisscrossing uh, Europe to go to boring meetings uh, to which I have to go to present something. I will be doing by Zoom, but I will certainly go you know, qualitatively to the, the meeting in which I think that there's a, a good gathering of people and I want to interact with them and I'm not able to do it on Zoom. So I think we are going to, and all, everyone is going to sort of to do the same, to sort of invent the right combination, the one that makes you more, more, more productive. And you touched on the issue of zombie 
businesses? I mean, you know, what happens to those businesses that are being propped up by, you know, emergency COVID relief at the moment? But once that funding is withdrawn, those business just may, just businesses just may stumble and, and collapse. Well, we, we have to be, let me answer first if you, um, I, I think we have to be very clear that there are two categories of businesses, that companies that are viable, uh, perfectly profitable, but that have been hit hard and they are, they are over indebted. And those companies, they need a debt restructure, um, but they are viable. So the, the, the priority of policy should be to avoid keeping them in a difficult situation, which would turn them into zombie. Because you know, if you're over indebted, you are not able to invest. You're not going to. So you're going to lose out in terms of, the, of the competitiveness, and eventually you're going to become a zombie. So there needs to be an early action to to sort of you know relieve these, these companies from this excess debt. And this excess debt is in part debt to the banking sector, but it's in part debt that, uh, to the state through the guarantee scheme or through you know, postponed uh, social security and tax uh, contributions that have been postponed. So there, there needs to be a, a restructure. And then you have the companies that are not viable um, because either because they were not viable before or because they are in sectors uh, that, uh, in which the, the, the opportunities have, have shrank to a degree that make them unviable. And those companies have to be closed down. So there needs to be a triage. And the, 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 the difficulty is that there is still imperfect information to do that. That's one difficulty. And the other difficulty is that the, 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 the sheer scale of what has to be done is uh, somehow unprecedented, you know. You're not going to have to use the traditional procedures to decide which, which restaurant or which shop is still profitable. But I think the right way to do is to use the information the banking sector has about those companies. The state doesn't have any information, um, but banks know their customers. And so there needs to be an incentive scheme uh, that basically tell the banks, uh, if you do, your part, if you're restructuring part of, of your, your claim, the state will do the same and perhaps even a little bit more to show that it values the continuation of viable businesses. So that's that, banks in pretty big poll uh, position, but is it not also saying to governments, you know, you're in the economies, you're in these economies to stay, you're gonna have to play a, a huge role yourself and between governments and the banks, you're basically going to determine um, who's viable, who isn't, who succeeds, who fails. Is that what the sort of prospect would no, be? No, the government is completely unable to decide which, which restaurant is profitable. I mean, that's not, the government doesn't have the, the, the granularity, doesn't have the expertise, etc. That's not the business of government, that's the business of banks. So government has to rely more on, 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 on banks, on, on the private creditors. You're putting a lot of faith in the banks, uh, Jean. Yeah, <laughs> I and I, uh, Jean, uh, Jean I, I think that is, um, I wonder whether that is actually realistic um, or whether if you follow the model that you've just set out, whether governments would in fact find that tolerable. Um, they might want, for example, I mean, Britain, we have the question of the railways I referred to, um, they were sort of private. 
Um, but and are now running at huge losses. Um, does the government just let them go under? Well, no, it, it doesn't want to. What about city centres? It doesn't know at this point whether city centres are going to revive or not. Um, does it make a choice? It's made so many choices to support things so far. What, does it, what choices does it make? Does it just uh, allow things to go under when there might be an argument for viability, as you've put it? And I don't think the distinction between viability and lack of viability is as clear as you said. I think it's a huge difficulty for, for government policy coming in in who bears the losses on, on property. You've got a lot of businesses saying, look, we can't pay our rents. So where does that loss fall? Does it fall on, 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 um, on the landlords? Um, to what extent does the insurance, comp uh, the insurance industry pick up part of the bill for the whole cost of, 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 of COVID? There are some really difficult decisions there. And I think if you leave it simply to the, um, uh, the private sector, which I'm all in favor of doing in many, many contexts, um, but I, I think you could end up with something that is not at all what um, the government or, or politically would be tolerable. So I, I I, I, I feel you're putting too much weight on the banks to make these decisions. John? I'm, uh, first of all, I, I'm not saying um, it's easy at all. It's, it's a difficult uh, decision. And perhaps, I mean, in some cases, you need, you need more time to sort of, as you, as you said, I mean, there's a high uncertainty and in a high uncertainty situation, uh, there are cases in which you, you, you can't uh, decide uh, for, for now. Uh, and second, I'm not saying that this should be done across the board for all sorts of companies. Obviously, there are sort of medium-sized or larger companies like uh, railways. There needs to be a, an explicit decision by the, by the government, so you can't let it uh, be done by, by the bank. But I'm saying I mean, the, the, the scale in terms of the number of companies, it, it's simply irrealistic to assume that government has the, the ability to scrutinize the situation of all those companies and, and decide on a case-by-case -case basis what to do. And it has to be a case-by-case -case decision. So there needs to be a way to change scale. Otherwise, you're going to have uh, you know, the ordinary uh, procedures being overwhelmed by the number of cases, uh, companies in a limbo for much too long. Uh, that wouldn't be good. I, I wonder whether it's going to have to be a case-by-case -case decision, though. I think the, the government may find itself in the position of wanting to extend support to some categories while the picture gets clearer. And you know, we've, we just have... you mentioned you've mentioned transport. How on earth are railways going to get back to any sort of previous recognizable form uh, in their business plans, their yeah. financing, having been having gone through what they've experienced in the last year? But I mean, for transport, surely we're going to discover this impact on a whole lot of sectors where the state is going to have to assume an almost indefinite responsibility and role in framing decisions and providing an essential partnership to the private sector. Is, is this, are we not possibly seeing a completely different sort of economic frame of, uh, of doing business and, and the government's role now? I, I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the big questions, again, unknown, uh, the answer unknown, um, the question is absolutely definitely known um, of what, you know, the, the, the role of the state is going to be coming out of all this. You know, we've just had elections, local elections in, in, in Britain, which went very well for the government, badly for the opposition uh, overall, as Peter knows. Um, 
the change of his old uh, constituency, but it was at a particularly difficult point for uh, the opposition and a particularly um, good point for the government because the government was paying and supporting for so many people and businesses. The really difficult decisions for any government, whatever its political ideology, seem to me when you start making those decisions, um, discriminating, dis differentiating between one group of businesses you will support, one group you won't, um, whether people, uh, the furlough schemes supporting them, you know, stop being paid and so on. Removing the support of coronavirus is when the political decisions get really difficult and when we start to get an answer to that question of how big um, government is going to be and what people want government to be. Let me let's pursue the political thread of this discussion and, and, and look at France. I mean, Jean, what, what Bronwyn is alluding to is a rewarding, essentially, of the Conservative government in England, the SNP government in Scotland, the Labour government in Wales, for a fairly successful vaccine rollout, and people have given that a stamp of approval, uh, and they've, uh, you know, voted with their feet at the polls. How has it been in France? I mean, would you say that um, uh, the, the public in France have been just as forgiving uh, of their government's early mistakes as they have to a large extent been in, in, in the UK? Um, are they rewarding the government for a sort of successful vaccine uh, rollout? I mean, how are French voters uh, seeing it, and what do you think the political overhang of the pandemic will be for the French presidential and other elections next year? The French public is highly volatile in this in this regard. I mean, the, you know, the by definition, what has been consistently approved is the handling of the economy by the government. So the government is credited for that. The on the health front. Uh, Opinion has been very volatile, depending on the basically the you know developments and the, the situation. Uh, the, the current phase is is also positive for the government uh, because of the vaccine rollout and because government, as I said, took this bet against the advice of the of the scientific uh, community, uh, which uh, advocated the. Uh, more severe lockdown uh, early in the year, um, advocated against uh, easing the uh, restrictions uh, early. Uh, so, so basically wouldn't have agreed to reopen the restaurant today. Government took the bet and so far, since it has, seems to be, to be working, but it's, it's certainly there, there are many uncertainty remaining, um, uh, the government is credited for, for that. So, so it's it's a relatively good phase, but again, that's very uh, a very volatile environment. I mean, I don't want to get into invidious comparisons here, but we get the impression that in France, you know, a combination of a slightly less efficient vaccine rollout, coupled with substantially greater anti-vaccine sentiment, uh, sentiment, has actually posed some very difficult questions regarding the state's capacity to deliver uh, in, in, in this crisis. I mean, is that correct? And 
are there any lessons from the pandemic for France to learn about how to improve its system of governance or its public health system? I mean, what is the, where is the conversation going to in this context? Well, the vaccine rollout uh, has been slower for reasons having to do with the, uh, you know, the, the, the way uh, the issue was approached by the EU and, 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 and the UK. Uh, so there is a sort of you know two three months lag between uh, what uh, has happened uh, on your side of the challenge and what's happening here, uh, but but basically uh, vaccine rollout is, is is developing and you know fast. I mean we are a sort of ten million people per month at present, uh, which is uh, which is really significant. Now, now the, your broader question is: What are the, the lessons for the organization of the of the public health uh, system? What has worked uh, well is the hospital system. The hospital system has been able to, you know, to cope with the uh, the wave uh, in, in very effectively. Um, they were never overwhelmed. They, they they were able to extend the capacities, uh, but they did it against the bureaucracy. It's basically the hospital, you know, you have the, 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 the medics and you have the, the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy is taking care of the cost and the level of spending, etc. And in this crisis, they put them aside and, and the medics took power again. Uh, so that's what happened. And the public health bureaucracy in general hasn't proved to be uh, very uh, effective in adapting to changing situation, et cetera. So eventually it has worked better, but I think it tells you something about the, the whole organization of the, of, the, of the health system, the combination of, you know, we have a complex system in which everything is socialized in terms of financing, but, but unlike in the UK, doctors are, are, are private uh, doctors and uh, you have all the, uh, the, the complex relationship between the, the public hospital system, the private hospitals, the, the, the practitioners, private practitioners, etc. And all that, you know, uh, what we've seen is that under pressure, the system relies uh, too much on the, uh, on the ability of, uh, of a few institutions, a few individuals to take the initiative, but as, as a system doesn't react uh, very effectively. But that's interesting, Bronwyn. I mean, what Jean seems to be saying is that uh, the capacity of the French health system, healthcare system, beds, hospitals, intensive care units, et cetera, is greater than we have in Britain, but that the system as a whole uh, has been less um, nimble or has been able to adapt to the crisis, perhaps less well than we have here. I mean, what, what lessons, Bronwyn, do you draw from the contrast between how France and the UK have handled the pandemic? I mean, how much of a, of a difference is down to system? I mean, the inherited national institutions like our own and the NHS, mm -hmm. and how much to the different choices and character of their respective political leaders, uh, if I can put it in that way? Uh, you can. Um... Both play a part, obviously, and I think what Jean has described about French um, healthcare um, rings very true to those looking at it. Um, 
the NHS is, is enormous and hard um, in some ways to manage. It has been run with less spare capacity than, um, than the healthcare system in many other countries. And there's a big question coming out of this for Britain of whether it wants to build in some spare capacity. Obviously that costs money, which there is not gonna be a lot around. Um, but it was run very, very, very tightly. On the other hand, um, was able, because of a lot of the attention that has been given to management and actually command in management, um, particularly in emergencies, um, was able to take some decisions very quickly, how to set up um, the Nightingale uh, you know, extra overflow hospitals, how to clear um, intensive care units to prioritize uh, COVID patients, how to uh, reorganize the, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the queuing, how to in, in, indeed get, you know, a lot of consultations with GPs and so on done uh, over the phone and video and so on. So some of that re represents work that's been going on for 20 years and the fruits of that um, then came through very quickly. Some of it work on, on management and it did show some of the things that work um, about the, uh, the NHS. That's not to um, understate the enormous strain on frontline NHS staff, mm -hmm. many of whom are still struggling with the effects of that. So the institutional things, um, the, there were differences in, in choice um, of, the, um, of, the, of the leaders and Boris Johnson has, has now agreed to an inquiry which will investigate many of the choices he made. But I think um, President Macron, I think this is from a British perspective, I'm not, I'm not here to throw uh, rocks across the channel, um, but it did seem to me guilty of giving uh, mixed messages for all kinds of reasons. Um, he didn't, I think, do as much as he could have done to encourage confidence in the vaccine rollout. Um, and, the, and then particularly on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine gave really confusing messages uh, on um, wanting a uh, uh, more uh, the stock, uh, to, to hold on to stockpiles of the vaccine. On the other hand, seeming to be very skeptical of whether he, uh, he actually wanted his country to be using it. And then not for old people, overstating the, the case on that. And then not for young people. And the whole thing um, was really, I think, less than clear um, from, from a leader. And you also, both of you referred to cultural factors. And I think, you know, those do play a part. Countries are very, very different in their attitudes to medicine. Um, I remember someone from GlaxoSmithKline a long time ago, but telling me that they had to produce the same medicine in different forms for the different countries in Europe. Britain like pills, Italians are fond of injections, uh, French had a... Um, uh, greater tolerance uh, suppositories than maybe other uh, countries. And uh, anyway, tastes and national tastes, there's a French uh, taste for, for homeopathy that is not shared by many other countries. You've got to, you've got a lot of cultural factors in there as well. But in answer to your question, Peter, I think there could have been more clarity from the top of, from President Macron on vaccines. Let's take a look at the pandemic in relation to the European Union. Can I, can I just react to that before? Oh, I look, think, I think you know, in, in this kind of crisis, I mean, the, the, what a leader should do is to uh, say what he or she knows at the moment on the basis of the information he or she had. Um, to be overconfident in sort of, you know, reassuring people, telling them, don't worry, can backfire terribly. I mean, the, the French government paid a high price for having told people 
on the basis of medical advice, masks are useless initially. And, and obviously people heard afterwards, they told us masks are useless because they didn't have masks. So I, th I think you sort of, you know, it's preferable to say, uh, we think that uh, this uh, vaccine uh, is effective and that the balance of costs and benefits is clearly in favor of the benefits. But if more information arrives, uh, we're going to revise and uh, we sort of adapt the judgment on the basis of the information we have on an ongoing basis. That's the only way to preserve your credibility. Yeah. Jean, I find that an entirely plausible and credible statement. It doesn't, to me, resemble what the president of France said. <laughs> let's let's uh, uh, let's not oh. dwell. Let's not dwell. Uh, let, let's let's look at the European Union because, I mean, the the this has been an immense challenge uh, for the EU, and the EU's purpose obviously is is a sort of uh, creation of a sort of a common. Commerce, a, a, a common European interest, you know, where, where borders are are, are 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 declining, receding. But the hard truth is um, that the pandemic, as with other national uh, other crises, you know, people expect their leaders to put their countries first, and the need to protect public health uh, has led naturally to attempts to stop the virus traveling, and therefore to a revival of uh, borders. Um, some others have looked to the EU institutions, the Commission notably, for solutions, although in fact the European treaties give the Commission little power uh, in public health. Uh, and of course we've had the controversy over the Commission's procurement of vaccines. Let me ask you both, how well has the EU, in your views, uh, come out of the uh, pandemic? Do you think it will push the European project backwards or forwards in, in, in the round? Um, uh, Jean, let me ask you first. Mm -hmm. That's a difficult question. Uh, I mean, clearly the, the way people look at the EU in terms of the management of the public health uh, dimension um, is certainly critical and, and rightly, rightly so. Um, I think the mistake that was made initially uh, was sort of to put the emphasis on doing what the, the uh, EU is most able to do, which is sort of to you know, ensure procurement at uh, best uh, possible conditions in terms of price, rather than to putting the emphasis on um, getting uh, actually vaccines and at an earlier stage, putting the emphasis on actually producing, uh, inventing and producing the vaccine. I mean, the, the Operation Warp Speed, uh, which was highly successful, uh, and even though the EU contributed also to the financing of some of the, of the vaccine that were, were found, it wasn't able to, to roll out the same sort of, uh, you know, uh, no budget constraint, uh, focus on speed, focus on, um, uh, innovation type of approach that proved so highly successful in, in, in this crisis, which is, which is, you know, in part the reflection of what the EU is and the competence it has in this field, um, but that's, a, that's not a positive, uh, positive legacy. Um, now, 
the, you, are you saying? Are, sorry, are you saying that you, you, are you agreeing with the commission's argument that they would have done better if they'd had greater legal competence in this area? It's well, the, the, the commission didn't have you didn't have any competence, uh, but but it took responsibility. So you can't you can't have it both ways. I mean, if you if you're taking political responsibility for something, then you you can't come back and say, oh, by the way, I didn't have the means to do what I was uh, supposed to to do. No. Um, and it's a matter of political responsibility. And I think I think it was, uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 difficulty for the the EU is clear. I mean, the public health is a national competence. Now it's clear that. Uh, having a national competence for public health and having free mobility of people is incompatible. Uh, you can't have a, a public health strategy, uh, keep the border open, uh, and, and, and have no, uh, no coordination of those strategies at your level. And that's a problem that was a problem in the past, that's a problem going forward. I mean, if we want to go for a suppression strategy, sorry, or a containment strategy, if you wish, keep contagion at a very low level. Uh, we're not going to eradicate this virus. It's going to be remain with us, uh, I mean, in some, some form. The question is how low the, the level of incidence uh, will, will remain. So okay. that's something that will require um, a high degree of, of coordination if you want to keep the borders open. Uh, and, and that's a, a politically absolutely central issue because um, uh, it's it's about as you said very rightly it's about borders it's about the fact that you know do people think that what protect them are, are borders and if they think that uh, they're protected by, by borders then the next step is politically to go for the parties uh, that uh, emphasize borders and we know very well in the French case which is the party that emphasizes borders has been saying that for ever do you it's, think that it's a national, it's a national front. Do you think that might be the impact on the French elections next year, that uh, the, the idea of borders has been revived and therefore support for parties that support borders? I think that's a question. I mean, this is a party, I'm speaking of the National Front, this is a party that has been um, uh, you know, consistently advocating uh, closing borders, uh, closing borders to people, closing borders to goods, very protectionist, uh, anti-EU, uh, and and you know emphasizing sovereignty, all these themes are prominent in the public debate uh, today. Perhaps not anti-EU, but at least the border uh, protection. You know the question of vulnerabilities involved in international trade, um, uh, and and the the question of industrial sovereignty, which is not exactly the same. All these themes are present, and I think they're present for for good reasons, but they, they sort of resonate very well with the themes of the national. So we have a disconnect at present. We have, you know, if you look at uh, opinion survey about what people believe, uh, they, they seems to be in tune uh, with the themes of the national front. If you look at voting intentions, uh, it's not the case. The question is, which is right? I want to, come on in a moment to the European Recovery Fund. But before I do, um, Bronwyn, what's your helicopter view? Do you think the effect of the pandemic will be to reinforce this sense of a sort of a common European home? 
or do you think it's be the pandemic has given impetus to borders and those parties mm. that champion? I think the EU's come out of this surprisingly well, um, given all the strains that we've just been hearing about. I mean, it was, it was not bad on the purchasing of protective equipment in the beginning. The vaccine's obviously not good. But Jean was talking about what is the central point of whether um, these questions about whether people can move around um, should be set aside in favor of national policy. And obviously you've got countries with completely different, not just politics, but completely different economies, um, different need for people to be able to move around, to go to work physically, you know, and, and, and very different incidents of the virus to start off with. So enormous pressure for countries to want to take their own decisions on this. And I think it's surprising to me, um, but to be welcomed, and it's a, it's, a, it's a strong point for the EU, that it managed to get such a degree of, of harmony, uh, particularly over the travel, limited travel at the moment with, within the EU. Um, so I think, and we're obviously coming on to the, um, uh, the recovery fund, um, which is an achievement in my view, but it, I think the EU, despite the problems of the vaccine rollout, which has not, it's, it's shown the EU at its worst, not its best, um, it's come out of this with much more um, sense of itself and what it can offer to citizens than it than might have been. So I, I, I think, you know, for, for all that we're quite close to the worst episode um, that shows the EU in not a good light, and that's the vaccine purchase and rollout. Um, I think not bad if you're asking for the scorecard. Well, you talked about uh, member states with very different economies, and obviously the point of the recovery fund is to uh, give everyone a, sort of a, a more equalized sort of access to the means of recovery, whatever the state of their economies. Um, and it is one of the big outcomes uh, for the EU from the pandemic and actually quite a big sort of credit to French uh, diplomacy. Um, Jean, do you think that the Recovery Fund will fulfill the hopes that have been invested uh, in it? I mean, how economically significant do you think it will be? I mean, should it not be comparable to the heft that President Biden has put into America's recovery program and that perhaps the idea is great, but the scale is not sufficient? What, what's your view? Well, first of all, the, the Recovery Fund is not the only thing the EU did in this crisis on the economic front. I mean, you had the um, you, you had the decision on the uh, on, on the fiscal rules. You had the decision on the competition rules that basically you know to put them in abeyance. You had the ECB uh, action, uh, which has been instrumental uh, in um, in in helping countries, actually member states being able to, to borrow and to do what they, they, they had to do uh, on the domestic front. And then you had this re recovery fund. So the recovery fund, in my view, um, it's, it's much, I mean, it's, it's not a sort of short-term response. Uh, it's, it's being rolled out or it will be rolled out because it hasn't started gradually. Uh, it has to come with lots of checks about uh, you know, how the money is spent. Um, and it's a bet on uh, uh, helping the, the recovery of countries that were uh, in bad shape or, or hit badly by this crisis. 
So the it, the distributional impact is is huge. I mean, it's you know it's a it's it's nothing for Germany. It's relatively minor for France. It's big for Italy. It's huge for Greece. Uh, it's huge for 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 some of the of the new member states. So basically, it's investing EU money in the in the recovery uh, and in the uh, more than the recovery. I mean, in the in the strengthening of of relatively weak economy. And uh, I think the success or failure will be decided in Italy, uh, because Italy is a country that has had no growth uh, in GDP per capita for 20 years. And so there is no way you can actually, you know, with the level of debt they started from, there's no way you can get out of this, of this trap without reviving uh, growth. And, and so the, the, the the investment is, is on the part of the EU is, is very significant, but it can only succeed if there are matching reforms on the Italian side. Right. And I think the good news is that with Mario Draghi, there is a chance that uh, this, is, uh, this investment will, will pay off. It's very early to say, um, but uh, if it pays off, it will you know, come out as a, as a success, as something that has rescued basically the, uh, the, the, the Eurozone from it from a significant risk. Um, and I'm convinced that there will be further development. I don't know which exactly. I mean, you can't exactly use the same legal basis, um, but the lesson will be, will be learned. This has been successful and let's keep it as a possibility if something of this sort happens again. So you think, that, this, you think that despite the assurances that it's a one-off, it could in fact become a permanent feature? A permanent doesn't mean, in my view, a budget. I mean, it's not a budget. Uh, it doesn't go through, you know, the normal procedures for approving a budget, which requires a parliament, which requires uh, permanent tax resources, etc. But it's an instrument that can be mobilized um, in uh, certain conditions. Uh, and I would say, if this one is successful, there will be. I mean, everybody will know that there will be the possibility of uh, having recourse to an instrument of the same type in a future crisis, which okay. will be very I, I, I take that formulation, recourse to a similar instrument of the same type. Some will regard that as permanent, others not. Ronwin, how do you think the EU will resolve these tensions uh, between different member states and their view of the recovery fund and its status? in the way that it's resolved previous tensions um, by edging it all down the road, by putting in money as, as, as it is doing, um, by just try, trying to keep the show on the road. We've seen it in the, the, the Eurozone crisis. Um, I think I, 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 I think Jean put it beautifully, I mean, of, of how to look at this and that the test will come in Italy. I still think this is probably an easier challenge for the EU than the one that um, Hungary and other countries are, are putting to it on, on its core values. And there it's, I mean, it can fudge that too, um, but it's got a starker choice that can't be resolved with money um, and, and more time, if you like. So um, money and more time doesn't mean that's not a guarantee for success, but that is how the EU has try to resolve things and um, I would expect it to do it again. I want in the last 10 minutes, if I may, just to look at France and the EU. 
um, when we look at some of the centerpieces of current EU policy, the, the concept of strategic open autonomy, um, a major sort of lift of interest and uh, consideration of industrial policy, these are French priorities and they've been perennial uh, French goals in, in the EU. Uh, and Clement Beaune, the Europe Minister of France, has written very interestingly, I think, on Europe's future power, which he says should be directly linked to these policies and to these concepts. And France seems to be setting the EU's agenda in a way that it hasn't done for many years. I mean, is that a correct perception? Uh, is this how both of you uh, would see France's position and role now? Uh, in the European Union. Um, who would like to go first? As you wish. Wrong. Go ahead, Jean. Go ahead, Jean. I'm okay. thinking about well, it. Um, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far. I mean, I, I, I certainly agree that some of the themes that are now under discussion, um, I mean, echo some of the traditional French things like, uh, you know, strategic autonomy, like having a much more assertive external dimension of the EU policies, linking um, uh, economic policies to geopolitical context, the whole uh, um, theme, French theme of Europe as a power. But at the same time, uh, you know, uh, it has to be clear that these new priorities have to be approached in a way that starts from what we've learned in this crisis and not from the you know, old sort of fantasies that uh, some people uh, are used to developing. I mean, take this issue of vulnerability. I mean, we all learned that uh, we are extremely vulnerable for some procurements uh, because of there is a high concentration of producers uh, globally and we rely much too much uh, on a single foreign producers be largely china actually actually uh, on the basis of the numbers produced by the by the commission um, this is a this is a welcome recognition but this does not mean that the solution is basically to sort of repatriate everything that's uh, being produced there uh, and to go for a extensive reshoring. I mean, there, there are other ways. Um, you can diversify procurement internationally. Uh, you can ensure that there is a response capacity in, in, in case uh, there is uh, uh, an interruption of supply. There can be, you know, in some cases, it can be stockpiling. Uh, so I think we have to look at that. Um, and, but, but we have to look at that in a way that's, uh, you know, that's innovative. And I think for all the contradiction it includes, it involves this concept of open strategic autonomy sort of rightly puts uh, things um, uh, where they should be, be put. That you, know, you have to find new ways of combining uh, the open economy with uh, you know, prevention of vulnerabilities and uh, ensuring that you, are, you, you keep sufficient resilience. So I would say, yes, uh, perhaps a French influence, but that requires also some French learning and adaptation. Okay, Roman, I want to hear your view of this, but also link it to industrial policy, where there is a real sense that Europe really does need to catch up and beef up in some key uh, sectors. Do you think the EU needs to look afresh at competition policy 
doctrine. I mean, we need lots of startups, gazelles and the rest, but do we also need as well in some sectors, bigger European companies with greater global weight? And do we need to adjust competition policy in, in Europe to support that? I'd hesitate a long time before coming close to saying yes to that. I think um, competition policy um, in Europe has, has got considerably tougher over recent years. And that is the kind of thing that encourages innovation and startups rather than fostering national champions. And the, uh, Europe has, I think, supported a lot of examples of those. Um, these were companies that, that, that weren't contributing a lot to the um, efficiency of the economy overall. Um, no, I, th I think uh, Europe has some big choices about how to get in on some of the new industries, particularly green energy and so on, um, green cars, um, where Germany is enormously influential, but starting from a position you know, rather behind where it wants to be. Um, it's got a lot of external questions as well about how to deal with China and Russia, where the countries do not have the same views because they have completely different degrees of, of, of trading relationships with, with both of those. Again, Germany, um, something of a problem, it seems to me, for the EU, EU forming a combined view on this because of the degree of long, long decades of investment in, in China and its, its um, links okay. with, with Russia. So... Um, I think it is difficult for the EU to have, I mean, encourage a kind of common industrial policy, but um, going, relaxing its competition uh, policy in favor of national, national champions, if that's what you're suggesting, Peter, I think that would be a mistake. I want to ask you two last quick questions because we're almost out of time. Uh, Jean, first of all, the French presidency of the European Union next year will coincide <laughs> with the period of the French uh, election campaigns. This is not, I, I would suggest, a happy uh, coincidence. I mean, what does France want to achieve, do you think, from its presidency next year? And how is this going to collide with the uh, French elections, including its presidential? It's a bit early to say what France wants to, to, to achieve. Um, I think uh, the number of issues on, on the agenda, uh, you know, there's this whole dimension we were just discussing. Um, there, there will be uh, clearly the, uh, the follow-up to the uh, climate uh, package, including the uh, very important border uh, adjustment mechanism, um, which is potentially contentious with many uh, trade partners, but will be uh, a key to avoiding uh, carbon leakages. So we have to get the balance right there. Um, the, the issue of uh, reforming the fiscal rules, uh, which uh, is something of importance. Uh, I don't think we should sort of just go back to the old fiscal rules. Um, there needs to be an adaptation to a different environment with much higher, much more diversified, different debt ratios, but also uh, an environment in which it will need to be more ability to uh, recourse to, to, to fiscal policy. Um, there will be the discussion of the future of Europe. So, so I don't know at this stage, you know, uh, how all that will fit together. Certainly in terms of the uh, domestic uh, uh, impact on the, on the election, 
Something that was very visible in Macron's campaign in 2017 was uh, uh, his commitment to Europe. I mean, he campaigned with European flags. And if there is an image that remains of this campaign, the fact that the European flag was uh, present in the meetings on par with the French flag almost. And so uh, he uh, has to be accountable uh, you know, to, the, to the voters in terms of what did I deliver? Did, did this investment deliver? Um, and I think in a way he would certainly want to, to, to show that uh, Europe has been moving and that Europe has been part of the, of the response, both in terms of uh, the geopolitical developments. I mean, the Trump presidency is not far back uh, response to, to, to China, uh, but also uh, the ability to cope with this new um, shocks, uh, pandemic shock uh, on the health front. And the Obviously, Emmanuel Macron will be hoping that the French presidency you know, works for him in the elections rather than collides with the French elections. And I can understand that. Very last quick question to both of you. The, the French, the UK-France relationship. Um, I mean, let's be honest, uh, France has been on the robust side of the argument within the European Union uh, during the Brexit negotiations. Uh, hasn't exactly done Boris Johnson any favours, but at the same time, arguably, might be wanting to salvage from this uh, the defence and security relationship that uh, Britain uh, and France have. Um, what do you think is the uh, medium-term prospect for French and French and British relations going forward? Thirty seconds from each of you, Bronwyn. Um, the same as it has been for some centuries. <laughs> you know, bumpy with periods of closeness. Um, and I, I think that will go on. The, the after effects of Brexit will work themselves out. But I think the key relationship uh, in Europe for UK in, in the kind of coming year is probably with Dublin because of the unsolved quality of uh, the, the Northern Ireland border questions. And Jean, last word, Franco-British Franco relations, where are they going? I think to, to develop a creative, productive relationship, um, there needs to be more certainty on both sides. There needs to be more sensitivity in the part of the EU on, you know, whether the EU feels strong enough to develop a partnership with the, the UK. And there needs to be more certainty on the UK side uh, about what it wants and, you know, what the, what the strategy going forward after, after Brexit. And we don't see clearly what the strategy at present. On that note of uncertainty. Thank you both very, very much indeed. You have been absolutely brilliant prize pundits and performers. Thank you so much for your insights and for your commentary. Uh, it's, it's been tremendous talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.